Coming up next on Tech News Weekly, it's me, Jason Howell, sitting next to, in person, Micah Sargent. He's right here next to me, I promise. Uh, we've got a great show for you, uh, with starting with an interview with Emily Drybelbus uh, from PC Mag, talking about the Lightship L1. This is an EV RV. Uh, the first one that we've seen. So we talk a little bit about that. Harry McCracken joins us from Fast Company to talk about 20 years of LinkedIn. 20 years. Have you been using LinkedIn for that long? I mean, we're talking back like practically the 90s. Crazy stuff. Uh, Spotify app is getting a big update and it's bringing a lot of non-music things to the very forefront of the experience. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, actually, I am. I don't like it. Also, Apple Music has some classical music uh, that it's bringing not to its main app following Spotify's trend, but creating additional app that if you like classical music, you definitely want to check it out. Tech News Weekly is next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This, this is Twitter. Twitter. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 276, recorded Thursday, March 9th, 2023. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get the password manager that offers a robust and cost-effective solution that drastically increases your chances of staying safe online. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan, or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com. And by ACI Learning, tech is one industry where opportunities outpace growth, especially in cybersecurity. One third of information security jobs require a cybersecurity certification. To maintain your competitive edge across audit, IT, and cybersecurity readiness, visit go.acilearning.com slash twit. And by Collide. Collide is a device trust solution that ensures that if a device isn't secure, it can't access your apps. It's zero trust for Okta. Visit collide.com slash TNW and book a demo today. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. And sometimes we do it in the studio. I am one of your hosts, Micah Sargent. I'm the other guy, Jason Howell. Yeah, it is kind of strange. We decided to bring it back into the studio. Bring it back now, y'all. You know, bring it back to its its roots. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just we've, we've had this like well-worn trail yeah. that we've been following for the past couple of years, save for a few days where right. we've come we into the studio. did come in and then things went bad and then we left again. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, crossing fingers, yeah. I don't think things Knocking are going to go as wood. bad. As, yeah, anyways. Uh, so we're here for the time being and really happy to be here. So let's dive right in. We've got some great interviews for you. First of all, um, okay, so you may remember, go back in time a few weeks ago, I was wowed by Tim Stevens. Uh, who is making a case for electric motorcycles. Now, you know, they're super cool, but I'm probably not going to become suddenly a motorcycle guy just because EV motorcycles are a thing. But I'm already kind of an RV guy. Um, not that we own an RV, but we borrow one from time to time. We <laughs> love driving one around and, and camping and everything. So uh, I thought we should uh, get on Emily Drybelbus uh, from PC Mag, who wrote about Lightship. And their EVRV, EVRV. EV I like that RV. combination. Uh, welcome to the show, Emily. 
Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to get you on. I'm happy we were able to make this work, make this happen, and talk a little bit about another aspect of electric vehicles that I really know very little about. Again, we're so familiar with EV in the realm of you know cars and, and trucks. We're talking in pre-show about Rivian trucks and things like that are a little bit more common. I've seen some of them driving around. I have definitely never seen, at least to my knowledge, an EV RV. So before we get into the vehicle itself. Let's talk a little bit about the company, which is Lightship that you wrote about for PC Mag, um, and and also the Tesla alumni that kind of make up the founder, uh, the founding of the company. Tell us a little bit about the company. Sure. Yeah. So Lightship is an electric RV company founded by two Tesla alumni. So it's kind of exactly what you're saying. We're seeing the battery technology coming from passenger vehicles, bleeding into motorcycles and RVs and kind of finding itself all over the place. So these two two guys, uh, Ben Parker and Toby Krause, they both worked at Tesla for about five years, but in very different roles. So Ben, who had the original idea for the company, He's a battery engineer, and he actually has a patent from his time at Tesla on the battery pack construction and the energy storage in it. So he's kind of like the battery genius guy. And during the pandemic, he took a cross-country RV trip, and he started to have thoughts about how to blend those two worlds, like RVing and his knowledge about EVs. So then he kind of joined forces with Toby Krause, who also worked at Tesla, but in a very different capacity. So he was more on the business side, like finance and management. And then after Tesla, Toby worked at Proterra, which is a big name in electric school buses. So separate from this conversation, there's a lot of energy and a lot of federal funding going to schools around the nation to electrify school buses and move away from diesel, improve air quality for the kids and all that. But that's a we could do a whole separate segment on that. We'll stick to RVs. <laughs> but our, the school bus thing is relevant because it's a little bit more similar to an RV than a passenger vehicle like a Tesla Model 3, which is like a smaller sedan vehicle. So yeah. between the two, the Tesla experience disrupting that segment, the battery knowledge, and then just the, the business knowledge from Toby and the, the bus thing, they formed Lightship. And this week they revealed their first pictures of their much-awaited prototype, which you can see there. Um, it's called the L1, and they're taking reservations on it online right now, $500 uh, deposit. It's refundable, but you can reserve it, and then they're going to produce it in 2024. Wow. And I mean, looking at it, I don't know if they would like to hear this, but looking at it, I get, um, what is what is this? It's the Cybertruck. I'm getting Cybertruck oh. vibes off of it. Oh, You know, it's kind of got that weird kind of angular thing going on. Lots of triangles mm -hmm. <laughs> that the Cybertruck had. So yeah. it definitely feels different. If I saw one of these driving around, I'd definitely do a second take and it'd be like, what the heck did I just see? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty awesome. I think it's intentional. They, I yeah. interviewed both of the co-founders and they talked about using... They changed the electric drive train, chain, drive train. I think we'll get into that. But they also used the whole occasion to just redesign an RV and what it looked like and just start from the ground up. So I think you're exactly right and you're picking up on that. So, okay, you mentioned the electric drivetrain. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Like there are a number of ways that this, you know, RV is different. And mind you, we should also point out this is not this is not like a motorhome. You need a vehicle to tow this. And so one of the things that is was kind of challenging for me as I kind of think about what Lightship is doing here is, you know, when I think of EV, I think of the vehicle that's doing the driving and the, the fuel efficiency that that vehicle is able to achieve because it is driving, it is electric, you charge it. 
But with this, that is not the case. It's being towed behind something else. So how does the electric drivetrain and everything else, all the other decisions that they've made, really feed into, uh, I don't know, kind of finding some of those benefits that you find in other EVs? Yeah. So I'll tell you how it works and what the electric component is. Sure. So it's a pull behind trailer, kind of like an Airstream. You could picture that. Um, So you have a vehicle in front. It could be an electric vehicle or a gas powered vehicle. Um, But the trailer itself has a propulsion system. So it has a battery at the base between the wheels, just like an EV. So it has a battery connected to a motor. And then that unit is connected to the the vehicle in front through a typical trailer hitch, like what anyone would be familiar with. And when it feels pull on that hitch and it feels like it's being dragged or towed, then it will start up its own electric motor and kind of like do the work and bring itself down the highway as well. So it's really cool because it's offsetting what are some pretty serious fuel efficiency losses from towing something of this size for the vehicle in front. Again, whether it's an EV or a gas powered truck. So it's kind of like a partner to the vehicle in front and it has its electric battery that's propelling it along. Interesting. Okay. Now, um, if you've got one of these attached to your vehicle, like I'm trying to think like are EV vehicles like the Rivian truck going to be pulling one of these? And if that's the case, like what kind of range could you even expect Mm. to have? I mean, I mean, with a Rivian truck, I'm I'm curious if you even know this, like you can pull things with that. And Mm. uh, like, how does that impact the range? But this is I mean, RVs are a whole different ballgame. I mean, these things are gigantic. They're incredibly heavy. Um, they, you know, they, they completely decrease the range you get on, on a normal gas powered vehicle, uh, let alone EV. I don't, I don't even know the impact there. What can you tell me about that? Yeah. So what the co-founders told me is that whether it's an EV or a gas powered vehicle, you can expect the fuel efficiency to be a third of what it would be without the trailer. So if it's a 300 mile range EV with a trailer behind it, it would be a hundred miles. And then same for a gas powered. If it's 30 miles per gallon, it would be down to 10 miles per gallon, something in the back. So it just means a lot more frequent stops. And if you're road tripping across yeah. the country, that's kind of the last thing you want to do over and over again. And it's particularly relevant if you are using something like a Rivian in front, because what has been a sticking point with EV pickup truck 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 adoption i mean as popular as they are they can't even make enough enough of the ford f-150 lightning or the rivian i mean people love them but those are the early adopters and kind of like a sticking point with truly ditching gas powered trucks and going to ev trucks is the towing power so what people are saying online there's tons of threads on this is just you know they're towing something with their truck and the range is just plummeting like crazy Mm -hmm. so it's a problem and i have talked to um different car company CEOs about this issue. Everyone knows it. Um, But it means that you probably couldn't really do this type of trip where you have a trailer behind with an EV truck unless Mm -hmm. you had this type of new technology that Lightship is bringing to the table. Interesting. So it's the combo that makes that powerful. It also happens to be, and I'm curious to know um, kind of deeper what this actually um, brings to the vehicle, but the RV has uh, rooftop solar panels. It looks mm-hmm. like the entire roof is is covered <laughs> basically with yeah. these solar panels. What kind of energy production are those capable of doing and how does that feed into the entire system and hopefully improve, you know, things like range or, or whatever, or maybe it just powers the internal stuff like your fridge and your microwave, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. All of the above. I mean, it gets into, I mean, the fuel efficiency stuff 
is kind of like the brass tax, like the you save money, you're more fuel efficient. That's amazing. But the solar power stuff kind of makes it gets more fun. It's like you're now powering a whole home with your solar. So maybe you travel somewhere, you park, and then it has a three kilowatt solar system, which solar panel system. Not a, I don't know if solar system. I'm thinking about planets. <laughs> right. but, um, Sounds very solar, futuristic, though, when you put yeah, it Yeah, it's like it has a solar system. I don't know if it's that futuristic. <laughs> um, it has a solar panel system that could power a small home. So this is the RV portion of kind of the segment where it's like this vacation home. So, uh, you know, you park it. When you park it, the ceilings actually raise up. It has super high ceilings. It's a modern, spacious feel inside. And then it's always on. Like there's always power from these panels. So you can flip the lights on. I mean, it makes me think you could even put it in the back of your house as like a guest house kind of thing. Yeah, no um, kidding. Yeah, it's, well, it's really cool. Yeah, and not to mention, like I keep, my mind keeps going back to this idea of getting, you know, 100 miles of range, you know, pulling an RV <laughs> this size. I mean, that actually makes more sense. Cool, we'll just get this and put it in the backyard and it's like an ADU for, you know, our parents when they come into town or something. Hopefully something like this is more useful than that. But I mean, 100 miles of range as a possibility really kind of shoots, you know, shoots down the idea of doing something like this potentially. Um, are they, is Lightship the first to actually bring something like this to market in the RV sector? Yeah, yeah. And I just I just want to clarify, it's not 100 miles with this. It would be 100 miles range without this, with a, with a different trailer. So with oh, this see, one, I they're see. saying it's near zero range loss. Got so it. Okay, the, thank that's you the for benefit. clarifying. Yeah, sorry if I, I misspoke there. It's super important. That's why they made the product is to avoid that scenario. Okay, well, that's that's incredibly important then. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for that. So, okay, so they're the first to do this. Are there others kind of working on these things? And uh, like, what do we know about the the landscape of, of RV, EV or EV, RV? Mm -hmm. I don't know how you order that, but... Yeah, so I think Lightship was the first, and I did see some articles. Uh, Airstream is doing something similar, so that self-propulsion battery system. Yeah. Um, but Lightship was kind of the first to market, and that's that's why it's so exciting. I think they're presenting at South by Southwest next week. I think they're up for a design award, something like that. Um, so people are excited about it, and they're they're definitely the first movers. And then, uh, and then there is, you know, I kind of alluded to it earlier, like an RV that is self, you know, well, that, that you just hop in, you know, like a motorhome, that, that sort of uh, format. Um, is there any of this technology kind of being developed uh, for that approach to RV lifestyle? For motorhomes? Yeah, for, for the motorhome type thing. Not not needing a pull-behind uh, trailer, but right, actually like bringing the, this the into unit. a really large form factor. Kind of <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so that more like a bus type thing yeah. where it has its own steering wheel, gas pedal, all that. Yeah. Um, that depends on battery technology and advancements in that space. So what they told me is that they didn't think it made sense to do that right now just because it's too much to tow. The energy density is not enough to make it worth it. So you would still be losing that range. And then also you'd need a much bigger battery, which would increase the price like incredibly. So this is much bigger than Lightship. This is the same problem. Every car company, every truck company, even things like electric planes are dealing with where we just need to 
increase the energy density on batteries and decrease the cost of batteries, which are two really hard problems to solve. Yeah. Although people are working, they're racing to solve them. Whoever can figure it out absolutely has the keys to the kingdom when it comes to the electric revolution. Sure. Um, so maybe in five or 10 years if it gets there, but this depends more on battery technology than the lightship, I think. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Um, and then we've alluded to the cost, but we haven't spoke it yet. What 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 does it cost to get one of these lightship L1s? All right, so you are looking at $125,000 for this trailer. That <laughs> seems like a lot, and it is a lot. It is pretty comparable to an Airstream, though. Yeah. Um, and the Airstream's without the propulsion technology. So... It's, it's quite a bit. Um, there is a tax credit available that gets it down to just over 118000 So help you out, help you out a bit. Some, yeah. And I mean, I, I will also say, you know, based on the promotional shots that they released, this is, this is not a, you know, a, a lightly tacked together, you know, uh, RV. This is, this looks, is looking pretty premium. So they've got, you know, premium technology, obviously. Uh, the inside looks incredibly modern. I mean, it looks it looks really interesting. So, uh, will I be buying one of these? Probably <laughs> not. But you never know. In the next, you know, five, ten, fifteen years, uh, who knows? Who knows what's in store for all of us? So, uh, Emily, thank you so much for jumping on and talking a little bit about Lightship and what they have going on in the EV space. Um, tell people if if people want to find out what you're doing and uh, reach out to you, even uh, what do you want them to know? Yeah, so I write about all things EV um, and even wider, just emerging technology. So you can find my email on PCMag.com. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I started making some cringy TikToks if you want to check that out. That <laughs> my should favorite be fun. TikToks, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so you can find me. I'm out there. Um, my email is on PC Mag, my PCMag bio. Right on. Emily, thank you so much for hopping on. Appreciate talking with you, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. All right, coming up, Micah is going to speak with Harry McCracken from Fast Company about LinkedIn. You remember LinkedIn, right? It's kind of a big <laughs> milestone for LinkedIn. Sometimes I have to remember to log in and, and see what's going on on LinkedIn, but that's just me. I know that's not others. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Bitwarden. It's all about password management and keeping your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, can be used at work, on the go. It's trusted by millions. Even our very own Steve Gibson has switched over. With Bitwarden, all the data in your vault is end-to-end -end encrypted, not just your passwords. So you can protect your data and privacy with Bitwarden uh, by adding security to your passwords with strong, randomly generated passwords for every account. That's how you want to do it. Go further with the username generator, which creates unique usernames for each account, or even use any of the five integrated email alias services. So it's not just about passwords. It's about so much more. Bitwarden has new features to announce in their latest uh, February release, including significant updates to the key derivation function encryption. Now, uh, new Bitwarden accounts will use 600,000 KDF iterations for PBKDF2, as recommended by OWASP. Uh, Argon 2 ID is also an optional alternative KDF for users seeking specialized protection. There's a stronger master password it has a higher impact on security than KDF iteration. So you should have a long, strong, and unique master password for the best uh, protection that you can get. Master password security checks. So new users who create their accounts on mobile apps, 
on browser extensions and desktop apps can now check known data breaches for their prospective master password via HIBP. Logging in with a device is now available for additional clients. Login requests can also be initiated from browser extensions, desktop apps, and mobile apps. Share private data securely with coworkers across departments or the entire company with fully customizable and adaptive plans. Bitwarden's Teams organization option is only $3 a month per user, while their enterprise organization uh, plan is just $5 per month per user. And individuals can always use the basic free account. You get an unlimited number of passwords. You can then, of course, upgrade anytime to a premium account for less than $1 a month uh, or bring the whole family organization option uh, to give up to six users premium features for only $3.33 a month. At Twit, we are fans of password managers. We know that it keeps you safe. If you have a password manager that you trust, Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, on the go, or at work, and is trusted by millions of individuals, teams, and organizations worldwide. So you want to get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan, or if you want to get started for free across all devices as an individual user, all you got to do is head over to bitwarden.com slash twit and check it out for yourself, and you'll be happy you did. It's Bitwarden dot com slash twit and we thank bitwarden for their support of tech news weekly all right micah over to you right next to me (laughs) oh i'm right here literally (laughs) over to me wow um so i was surprised to learn that linkedin uh, a website that i think gets a lot of uh snark online Yeah. yeah from i I added i added to that a little bit i guess and i do it too um (laughs) is It's 20 years old. Yeah, that's crazy. 20 years old it's been around. And in some ways, it has defied uh, social media and sort of the expected way that social media goes. Yeah, that Um, it's It's wild. And joining us to talk about it is Harry McCracken of Fast Company, who has an oral history of LinkedIn from its founding all the way up to where it is now. Welcome back to the show, Harry. Hey, folks. Great to be here. It is always good to get you on. Um, So let's kick things off. Um, I was hoping that you could start by telling our listeners just about this piece in general, kind of what inspired it. And then, because this this is... done in a different way than, you know, we typically uh, see an article where an article just kind of has uh, everything you need to know all lined up. This is an actual oral history. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about this piece before we dig into some of the details. Well, I have to give credit to our editor-in-chief, Brendan Vaughn, because um, he's the one who proposed this idea. It was definitely his. And um, we realized that LinkedIn has been around for 20 years, but has had relatively little written about it. Um, it's not on everybody's minds all the time, but it really has had a, a real impact on, on the way work works. And uh, we decided to invest a lot of resources in it. So uh, both I and several of my colleagues um, interviewed people. We, we talked to about 40 people for the story, the, the founders of the company, um, early users, early rivals, uh, people have worked there over the years, the, the current staff, and instead of us doing a lot of their writing, we um, we really let them tell the story uh, in a way that involved a lot of work, but I think also <laughs> has a lot of value. 
Absolutely. I think this, honestly, sincerely, I think this is a magnificent piece. Uh, The idea in general is magnificent because it was a little bit like a podcast, but I actually prefer to read through. So I was really happy to uh, get to read through this and kind of hear all of these different perspectives come together. So um, let's talk about LinkedIn. You talk a little bit about in sort of the opening um, salvo, a little bit about how LinkedIn has defied uh, social media expectations. Can you tell us a little bit about that before, again, we dig into more of the history that led to LinkedIn? Sure. Well, um, I mean, Facebook and Twitter have pretty well-known rich histories, uh, but a lot of that history is, is about stuff like misinformation and trolling and harassment and maybe them having an addictive quality that's not necessarily so healthy. Um, LinkedIn uh, came out of the idea that the world needed a professional network. Uh, At the time it was founded in 2003, there were kind of a a bunch of early social networks, such as Friendster, which people at least sort of remember a little bit, that were personal. And and a lot of times they were focused on dating. And uh, rather than doing that, Reid Hoffman and the other founders of LinkedIn decided to, to put everything into people's professional lives, which are really important to them. I mean, careers matter to people. And so they built a social network specifically for that. And it turned out to be a pretty good business, but I think it also turned out to, in some ways to be a, a healthier social network than some, just because if, if you're in a professional context, um, most people don't want to look like jackasses or trolls <laughs> uh, if, if they're in a world where maybe uh, their career is on their mind and the possibility they might get a, a new and better job is on their mind. And that's really helped LinkedIn be healthy in a way that people, generally speaking, do not associate with social media. Absolutely. Um, now, let's talk about kind of the founding of, of LinkedIn, because uh, I was surprised to hear, and I think other people will be too, kind of the history of the creation of LinkedIn, because like some ideas, it's, it's a bit of a pivot, right? It was um, not necessarily going to be a professional network from the get-go. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, it comes a little bit out of this earlier social network, um, from the late 90s called SocialNet that um, Reid Hoffman was the co-founder of. And SocialNet, uh, which people generally speaking don't remember, did dating and professional stuff and uh, sort of it had a, a Craigslist angle to it. So it, it tried to do a whole bunch of things and um, got a little bit of traction but did not succeed for the long haul. And so when Reid Hoffman came back to this idea, he he said, I'm going to steer clear of dating. There, there are a lot of people trying to do that. Um, and I'm just going to focus entirely on, on business. And, um, you know, he thought that doing one thing well was a better strategy than doing a, a whole bunch of things. And um, he talked, he basically in his apartment, he threw around startup ideas at a time when uh, the, the dot-com bust was still kind of recent. And uh, the start the startup economy was struggling a little bit. He he brought together friends to talk about ideas. They, they talked over a number of them, but they, they kept coming back to the idea of a business network and they decided to go for it. And history, history shows that was a good call. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I found it interesting when you're talking about um, sort of the move from the, the launch and that, that pivot there to uh, to sort of growing as a company. And then I think the bigger point is changing perceptions. Um, an early 
concern and an early pushback regarding LinkedIn that I think to this day still remains, not even just with LinkedIn, but with any uh, social media network or any app, is this concern about uploading contacts and sort of making available uh, your your contacts a library with the hope that you will then find other contacts and be able to uh, communicate and connect with them. How did LinkedIn convince people that this was the thing to do? Right. I mean, 20 years ago, um, it was still sort of like the, the Rolodex era where people would, <laughs> yep. would, would collect business cards and then sometimes scan them into their computer, but they would have these great databases of people. And I think a lot of the time they were very proprietary about them and didn't want to share them. And um, But the whole idea of LinkedIn was that you'd have your network, which would become a network that also leveraged the networks of all the other people who you networked with. So so getting those contacts was really uh, critical to the idea. And um, I think part of how they overcame it was that um, people eventually realized that if you could network with um, the contacts of your contacts, that was actually really useful. But another thing they, they did um, was they made it really easy. At, at the time, everybody was on Outlook, and they created a tool for, for uploading your, your Outlook contacts. Uh. And then um, if LinkedIn does have a little bit of a rep- reputation still for annoying people, it's because they would take all your contacts, and, and you could automatically spam all of your contacts to ask <laughs> them to join LinkedIn, which helped the network grow quite quickly. Um, but also created this perception that it was a little bit spammy that I, I think has kind of remained part of people's perception of LinkedIn. Although, of course, over time, a pretty high percentage of um, the workers who they wanted to be on the platform did create profiles and, and found at least a, a tiny bit of, of uh, benefit some of the time for being there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it comes the time. So we've got, you know, we've we've figured out this idea. People are starting to latch on to it. And then they've even gone as far as being able to be at the forefront of a bit of a culture shift or a mind shift. And I think at that point, you realize you do have some power. If you can get people to uh, change their behavior and sort of be okay with a certain behavior, you go, oh, you know, we've got something here. And so now comes the time when people start to say, well, let's figure out how we can make some money with this. And so the next uh, part of the story is about making a business. Let's turn what was just an idea and now we've got all these users into a business. And I want to quote from the piece. Uh, This is DJ Patil, who's LinkedIn's chief scientist, uh, has been a chief data scientist of the U.S. Office of Science and Technology Policy, who uh, says, and I quote, people just wanted us to sell the database, and we could have. There's nothing legally preventing you from doing that. There was an ethical and moral obligation to the people that we served. So it sounds like in the early days that LinkedIn was looking at different business models and that there was an opportunity to just go, hey, we've got this huge, vast, ridiculous contact library or contact database. We could sell that and make money that way. But LinkedIn didn't want to do that. And from at least some of these perspectives, it was about that moral and ethical uh, quandary that existed there. But um, let's talk you know, in broad terms about how they went from an idea to having a business model. What, what do you do when you've got a vast uh, you know, user base of, of people who are sharing their, their uh, professional lives online? 
Well, they had a whole bunch of ideas, and they tried a lot of them. Like like very early on, they introduced paid accounts, which which you can still get. Um, and uh, but the thing that turned out to be the most powerful was the job aspect of it. Um, you know, there's this long history of, of uh, companies who um, are seeking employees, being perfectly happy to pay to do a job listing. And uh, in the early days, LinkedIn was competing against all these sites like, like Monster.com. They were kind of conventional job listing sites. But by that time, LinkedIn had this, this fairly large number of people on the site who uh, were there in a business context and, and even up, uploaded their resumes. And so um, essentially being an, an intermediary between potential employees and people looking for um, people to hire became super powerful. And it was relatively straightforward because um, the employers would pay for it. Um, and that's still a large part of what they do, although they, they also have a bunch of other businesses too. Like there is an advertising aspect to, to LinkedIn. They're not entirely dependent on it in the way that a Facebook or Twitter is, which is really good. But that's part of the business. Um, they also found that um, people would, would want to contact people who they were not connected with, and they were they were willing to pay for that. Um, so that became a business unto itself as well. And they've done well, I think, partially because compared to a lot of other social media sites, they, they have a pretty evenly balanced range of, of ways they can monetize themselves rather than it just being about targeted advertising. Yeah. And so... You know, again, we've got now a business. We've got these different means of making money. Um, and now comes something you point out f- was not was unheard of for a social media company because LinkedIn uh, became the first social media company to IPO, uh, to have an initial public offering and to go public. And that was a big day for LinkedIn. Um but in this period of time from IPO to the, the changes that took place, I have to tell you, I, it is not front of mind for me that uh, LinkedIn was acquired by Microsoft. Like, I forget that. And mm-hmm. I think part of that is because of that separation that you talk about there where Microsoft did make the acquisition, but has kind of let LinkedIn do its thing in the way that it does its thing. So tell us about, you know, going from IPO to then suffering uh, from a stock drop and then kind of being in, in many ways saved through that acquisition. What was that period of time like? Well, they had a, a certainly a successful IPO and uh, did quite well as a standalone publicly held company. Um, but then a few years after the IPO, um, they had one quarter where the numbers did not look all that great. And that caused a 40% drop in their stock price. Um, and which kind of you know, raised a lot of questions about what the future looked like and whether it might make sense for them to be part of a larger organization and led fairly quickly to this acquisition by Microsoft. Um, uh, this was when Microsoft was in the Satya Adela era and was looking for new things to do. And it was kind of in an acquisitive mode. And there was clearly some uh, at least overlap between Microsoft's role as the uh, creator of, of productivity tools that mm. hopefully make people more successful at work and LinkedIn's role as, as a place that helped people with their careers. And so um, the acquisition happened and it, probably the, the fact that um, you kind of forgot about it is a good sign because my, rather than Microsoft saying we're going to you know, suck LinkedIn up into the beast and integrate it in a, a thousand ways, they, they kind of have let LinkedIn be LinkedIn 
and it's much, much more successful as a part of um, Microsoft than it was as an independent public company, both, both in terms of the number of people who belong and the growth there and the revenue from that. And I'd say even just as a product, they've done a good job of, of becoming a, a more useful and interesting place over, over these years that they've been part of Microsoft. Absolutely. Um, and now let's talk about the now because we've, you know, the acquisition kind of helped it. And I like the the heading for this uh, section, beyond the blue man in a suit, <laughs> uh, as the company does try to, uh, I think, thrive in a in a modern world where there are there's there's an abundance of choice for social media networks. And it is 20 years old, it does, uh, I think for some folks feel out of date. Um, what, how, how does LinkedIn kind of continue? And I mean, you point out that it seems like it's showing no signs of peaking. So there's still a vast number of users who are currently there and more who are joining all the time. Why do we think LinkedIn has sort of circumvented the, 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 uh, the snark that Jason and I both had uh, about the platform we can't help at, it. at the beginning of the show. Well, they, I mean, there was a certain kind of like white collar worker who they kind of had sewn up and who was probably already on LinkedIn. But um, since they've been around for 20 years, um, people entering the workforce now are essentially the people who, who were babies when LinkedIn was started. And um, I mean, the, the world of work has, has changed a lot. Uh, it's been changing for years, but also the pandemic put the change into fast forward. And um, LinkedIn was emotionally aware enough to realize that that maybe younger people didn't come into work having any particular um, emotional bond with LinkedIn as an experience. And um, so they've done a lot of thinking about about how to make it um, more useful for those people. Um, they're focusing on things like the, like the fact that. Um, Resumes and profiles are fine, except a lot of people have skills that are not reflected by their resume. And so because LinkedIn has all, all this big data about people, they can figure out ways to connect people with potential employers, not just based on, on where the, those people have worked, but also the skill sets they have had that might be useful. Um, there are whole countries where LinkedIn is still kind of in growth mode, like like India. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic market for them, and uh, they're, they're growing extremely rapidly there. It's kind of their, their biggest growth market. Um, there are whole kinds of, of jobs that people have where they weren't necessarily on, on LinkedIn, like like first responders. Um, people kind of work on their feet in retail, um, all kinds of jobs where um, LinkedIn wasn't necessarily useful in the past, but they had the, the opportunity to make themselves useful. So one kind of remarkable stat is while, while we were working on this story, LinkedIn had its biggest day ever in terms of, of new signups. Oh, wow. Um, that's, wow. That, that's really kind of notable. That doesn't happen a lot for something that's been around for 20 years and already okay. had hundreds of millions of users. So they, they have indeed found um, a way to be useful in the way they've always been useful, but but also to to reach out to um, uh, these new areas where, where in the past they weren't necessarily top of mind. Wow. You know, it, that was going to be my last question. If there was anything in the the work that you did that really stuck out to you, is there anything else uh, aside from that, you know, biggest new new signups that um, maybe you didn't know or that surprised you as you were compiling this oral history? Um, 
yeah, I guess another interesting angle is that for, for the longest time, unless you were looking for a job, there was not a whole lot of reason to go to LinkedIn. It was not like a daily habit. And they wanted to make it more of a, of a daily habit. And at, at first they tried this partnership with Twitter where tweets uh, flowed into LinkedIn, but, but then Twitter decided to shut off that feed. And so um, LinkedIn scrambled a little bit, but they, they decided that um, there was an opportunity to get people essentially to sort of almost blog on their platform and comment on other people's posts. And in order to make that look more appealing, they, they, they got people like Richard Branson and Ariana Huffington to start doing it. And that worked really well when, when, when kind of um, normal LinkedIn users saw these well-known business people mm. using the platform, they started to do it too. And so now there, there is a lot of content on LinkedIn and it, you know, again, it's kind of healthy content. Uh, I, I'd say the worst, the worst thing that uh, LinkedIn can make you feel about yourself is maybe that you wish you were more successful than you are, <laughs> but, but beyond that, it's generally a constructive place. And they did a pretty clever job of um, making that happen through, through uh, getting these notables to do it, which indeed led to other people wanting to do it too. Absolutely. Well, Harry McCracken, I want to thank you, first of all, for your work on this piece. I think everyone should head over to fastcompany.com to check it out. Uh, but if folks want to follow you online and check out all the great work you're doing, where should they go to do so? If they go to fastcompany.com, they'll find my stuff. They'll, they'll also find a way to sign up for my newsletter plugged in, which just started recently. And um, on Twitter, I am um, at Harry McCracken. And um, those are probably the two best places to find me these days. Awesome. Well, I will definitely be subscribing to that newsletter. Thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure. All right, folks. Up next, Spotify goes TikTok. More on that in a moment. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by the fine folks at ACI Learning. For the last decade, our partners, our partners at IT Pro have brought you engaging and entertaining IT training to level up your career or your organization. And get this, IT Pro is now a part of ACI Learning. With IT Pro, ACI Learning is expanding its reach and production capabilities, offering you the content and learning modes you need at any stage in your development. Whether you're at the very beginning of a career or looking to move up in your sector, well, ACI Learning is there to support your growth, not only in IT, but also in cybersecurity and audit readiness. Yes, those very big terms that uh, I know a lot of you are having to deal with on a regular basis. One of the most widely recognized beginner certifications is the CompTIA A plus certification. And the more I read these ads, the more I realize that I want to go get this CompTIA A plus certification. And I can do that with uh, ACI Learning. CompTIA courses with IT Pro from ACI Learning make it easy to go from daydreaming about that career in IT to actually launching it. Earning certificates opens doors to most entry-level IT positions and supplies potential promotions for those already in the field. Tech is one industry where opportunities outpace growth, especially in cybersecurity. A recent LinkedIn study eh, predicts IT jobs will be the most in-demand roles in 2023, so honestly, there's no time to waste. About one-third of information security jobs require a cybersecurity certification, compared to 23% of all 
IT jobs. While organizations are hungry for cybersecurity talent, the cyber skills gap grows bigger each day. The average salary for cybersecurity specialists is $116,000. ACI Learning's Information Security Analyst and Cybersecurity Specialist programs can help you get certified. In 2022, the global cybersecurity workforce gap increased by 26.2% compared to 2021. ACI Learning offers multiple cybersecurity training programs that can prepare you to enter or advance within this exciting industry. The most popular cybersecurity certifications offered are CISSP, EC Council, Certified Ethical Hacker, Certified Network Defender, Cybersecurity Audit School, and Cybersecurity Frameworks. Where and how you learn matters. ACI Learning offers fully customizable training for all types of learners, whether preferred in person, on demand, or remote. Take your learning beyond the classroom. Explore everything ACI Learning offers with IT Pro, Audit Pro, including enterprise solutions, webinars, and the Skeptical Auditor podcast, practice labs, learning hubs, and their partnership program. Tech is one industry where opportunities are outpacing growth, especially in cybersecurity. One third of information security jobs requires a cybersecurity certification to maintain your competitive edge across audit, IT, and cybersecurity readiness. Visit go.acilearning.com slash twit. That's go.acilearning.com slash twit. Don't forget to use our special code of TWIT30 to get 30% off a standard or premium individual IT Pro membership. And thank you, uh, ACI Learning and IT Pro, for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly and our studio. Thank you. Yes, indeed. Look at that. It just looks so nice. It's just, it's just so shiny. Um, so, hey, I heard that you like your music streaming app to be more like TikTok, Micah. That's the word on the screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. I'm yes anding. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, that, uh, that, I'm sure those, that's never happened. No. That someone has thought, hey, I need my music streaming app to be more like TikTok. No. But yet that's where we are. Spotify obviously thought that's what we wanted. Um, now, I should say for the record, I have not gotten on my phone this update yet oh good so i do not have You're the, safe have not had the opportunity to the test pleasure, it out on my own the pleasure to indulge in um in the changes here but maybe it's maybe it's a little much saying it's like tiktok because maybe that's not necessarily exactly what it's like it's not like suddenly there's a bunch of people recording random things and and uh lip syncing the songs or whatever it is people are doing on tiktok nowadays which is everything but um <laughs> But The Verge wrote all about Spotify's new design direction. And, uh, you know, I'm, i got to admit I'm a little concerned. Spotify's my music app uh, now. I used to be on YouTube Music for the longest time. And uh, I think the final straw, because it's it was never fully satisfying, but the final straw was when we got our new car. It doesn't have any sort of integration with YouTube Music, but it does with Spotify. Interesting. Yeah, very strange. Huh. And so we're like, okay, well, let's test it out. And for the most part, we've been pretty happy. Um, but, you know, when it comes to the app, I feel like the app has, uh, at least in my experience, been pretty good at just kind of getting me to the music, which is kind of what I want out of a music app. It also doesn't make um, 
like videos, like music videos, it doesn't try and force that on okay, you, okay. which on YouTube music, I felt that all the time. I felt like there was always an opportunity to switch over to the music video. And to be honest, as a, as a parent of children who, you know, I, I wanted to kind of like reduce the, mm-hmm. um, the desire or the temptation to suddenly, you know, find themselves stuck in, mindless zombie watching video right. screen land um, over over, you know yeah. i would dis- disable the music videos but it's but it's really easy for that to, to get back on i just want a music player because mm-hmm. that's what i want to, you know for myself and for my family just to listen to music so um spotify has been trying in recent months to kind of and actually in recent years to make itself more than just a music service right mm-hmm. Um, they have the podcasts, uh, that have been a big deal the last couple of years. They've got audio books, even live audio, which is a world of Spotify. I'm not at all familiar with. I didn't even realize that until, that until reading this article, <laughs> but the redesign, the app itself, um, prior to the redesign has stayed pretty true to its original purpose. I would say you open it up, you get your music, you play music great but now what we're seeing is it's moving a little bit further away from that core purpose because it's got to kind of justify and hopefully make money make you know continue to make money for the company out of all these other facets of business that it's getting into so the core home screen of the app is going to surface now not just albums and playlists uh if you think you're going to want to listen to those those are going to be up the top thankfully so you're not going to have to search for those right for now uh but under that autoplay videos video podcasts and Instagram style photo stream things like this coming to Why? the Spotify app. Um, because I think that, I mean, I'm guessing here and, and the verge kind of guesses here too, but they have all these other facets of their business that they're trying to promote. They're Got trying it. to get people to use and interact with the thinking. I, I imagine is if we place these little nuggets in front of you, we have the potential of kind of reeling you in, you know, that's a, that's an interesting uh, video uh, podcast. Okay, sure. I'll, I'll watch this video podcast through your app instead of through my RSS mm-hmm. uh, feed or, or audio books. Oh, I didn't realize that book was on Spotify. Great. Um, so it's all about kind of discovery of the many things that Spotify, I guess is doing right now. Um, but yeah, um, I, I don't know if it's recouping costs, you know, there's been news in recent months about Spotify's podcast bet not being quite as good for the company as was once kind of assumed because it seemed like they were flush with money to throw around to the Joe Rogans and and everything to bring them into the network. Yeah. Seemed like, oh, no, they're going to take over podcasting. And uh, what happens, you know, in the in the dust, you know, that's left behind. And it seems like that that plan isn't working perfectly for the company right. maybe this is a way to kind of like reinvigorate is to you know present all of these all of these things that you have p- perhaps willfully been ignoring mm-hmm. <laughs> up until now mm-hmm. but so i don't know there's a, a but also you did mention a couple of weeks ago that ai dj yes. functionality which you know was another aspect that's like a using the technology to do something that's actually pretty appealing absolutely in fact just uh just a couple of days ago i was talking to someone who's not steeped in technology who is not you know a techie person and he had mentioned that he had uh 
that, you know, he was talking even independently of me. I was listening to him uh, speak with some other people and he starts talking about the DJ thing. Oh yeah. Spotify just added this and we got into a conversation about it. And yeah, he was excited and was enjoying how much it was tuned to his taste. Interesting. And how it like, it almost, it was, uh, it's like when you feel seen, when you yeah. feel seen and you feel like someone knows you and they're hearing you. Yeah. And yes, of course, it's an AI, so it's not real, but it does have that sort of uh, invigorating feeling of, oh, wow, someone gets me. Yeah. And the music this was, works. you know, was good. I like that a whole lot more than, let me put a bunch of things in your way while you're just trying to get yeah. listen to music. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it just makes that home screen, the the screen that opens up. The very first when you open an app, it makes it just a lot less useful. Yeah, to me, it makes yeah, it less it's useful. Super busy because it's not just on? open the app to do the thing I want to do. It's open the app to explore and to see what's what's hiding beneath. It really it almost reminds me less from the screenshots and the kind of the idea of it reminds me less of TikTok and more like YouTube. Mm-hmm. Like when I open YouTube, oh, right. the main it's like, page. yeah, that main page on my phone specifically, it's like a constant, you know, ongoing stream of, yes, there's something sprinkled in there that are, you know, maybe networks or channels that I follow. But then there's also a lot of like, we think you would like right. this or so yeah. recommended that you watch this. And like, I don't even interact with that because like I, I go there very specifically for either a search that I have in mind or I'm a channel that I already follow. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Am I a curmudgeon that doesn't want to be like recommended to maybe, but I, I, I don't think I like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, maybe if it was just recommending new music yes, and it was doing it in a mind. way that right. was, it didn't try to, it's the fact that it's obscuring everything that yeah. you normally do with you Would for do with as it. long as you've used Spotify, anyone out there, you've been able to launch the app, do a search or right there on the main page, even get to what you had just been listening to. And now it's confusing. Where do I tap? Where do I click? Where, yeah. what, how do I get to the stuff that I just want to listen to? Why is all of this stuff in the way? It's just, yep. it's noise. Yeah. Noise. Not music. Noise, not music. Ooh, that could be a title. Write that down. <laughs> yeah, that could be a title for today. Uh, Spotify's noise, not <laughs> not its music. Um, yeah, so, you know, Casey Newton um, on Twitter had shared uh, his enjoyment with the AI DJ functionality saying that it was a great way to kind of like, like you said, be seen, but go into the catacombs of his yes. history and resurface things that at one time were, you know, he was listening to a lot. And then over the course of, you know, years and everything, those songs fall by the wayside. You forget about them. They fall deep within your like liked list. Yes. You know, of, of thousands of songs and you very rarely hear them and that this thing kind of resurfaced them. Those are features that, that would get me, you know, that get me excited because I'm all about rediscovering music I like. I'm 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 sometimes about recommendations. Like if you truly know my taste and you think I'm going to like this band, sure I'll check it out. But but that's that's even not the reason I open Spotify right. ninety percent of the time. You didn't open it for those, I know what I'm going. For. Yeah. See, that's how I use my. So I <laughs> I'm ridiculous and have multiple. I do use Spotify, and I think that's probably why I'm less bothered by the recommendation part of it, is because Spotify is that DJ, even before the DJ feature. What I liked about Spotify is that it did a better job of algorithmically offering new music for me to listen to or for me to just hit play, and I don't ever have to touch it again. 
whereas Apple Music, that's the place that I go where I have all of my albums and I've got them all how I want them. And I can go when I'm thinking, oh, I want to listen to this artist or, oh, I want to listen to this specific album. That's where I go for that. Oh, interesting. Whereas Spotify, so Spotify has, is more like your radio. Yes, precisely yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, and that, and that explains why you were so excited about the, the DJ. Yeah, DJ. absolutely. Because yeah. uh, I, it's it's exactly what I would want. And oftentimes, when I am listening to Spotify, that does happen. What Casey Newton was talking about, going back and going, oh, I forgot, oh, I forgot about, about that about song. This one. This and then gem. I go on Apple Music, I look <laughs> up the artist, <laughs> and I add that album. Yeah, so it's great all around. It, it's a great music discovery feature. Yeah. But I don't want it to be a video discovery feature and yeah. a podcast discovery feature and an audio book. Di- no, no, yeah. leave me alone. Yeah, things get <laughs> cloudy then but anyways we'll see uh how that works out for spotify and this is not the only music story we're talking no, it's about not. because when we come back uh from this break uh we're going to talk about your story of the week which has everything to do with apple music getting classy Ooh, that's coming up next but first this episode of tech news weekly is brought to you by collide collide is a device trust solution that ensures security unsecured devices can't access your apps. Collide actually has some really big news. If you're an Okta user, Collide can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. Uh, Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, and that's device compliance. And when you think about it, your identity provider only lets known devices log into apps But just because a device is known doesn't at all mean it's in a secure state. In fact, plenty of the devices in your fleet probably shouldn't be trusted. Maybe they're running an out-of-date OS version, or maybe they've got unencrypted credentials just lying around somewhere. If a device isn't compliant or isn't running the Collide agent, it can't access the organization's SaaS apps or other resources. The device user can't log into your company's cloud apps until they've actually fixed the problem on their end. That's just the way it is. For example, a device is going to be blocked if a employee uh, doesn't have an up-to-date browser, right? Using end-user remediation actually helps drive your fleet to 100% compliance without overwhelming your IT team. They, you know, they, They're there for the really serious stuff, but Collide can help with some of this other stuff that could be serious, but if it's just as easy for Collide to be able to recognize this and help you, uh, you know, fix the problem yourself, then everybody wins. Without Collide, IT teams have no way to solve these compliance issues or stop insecure devices from logging in. With Collide, you can set and enforce compliance across your entire fleet. That's Mac, Windows, and Linux. Now, Collide is unique in that it makes device compliance part of the authentication process. So when a user logs in with Okta, Collide alerts them to compliance issues and prevents unsecured devices from logging in. It's security you can feel good about because Collide puts transparency and respect for users at the center of their product. To sum it up, Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. How about that? Visit collide.com slash TNW to learn more or book a demo. And I'll spell it out for you. It's K-O-L-I-D-E, collide.com slash T-N-W. And we thank Collide for their support of Tech News Weekly. All right, Micah, what uh, what is Apple Music doing here yeah, the classical music. Yeah, so this is interesting. Um, way back in, uh, well, I guess not way back, but uh, back in 2021, hmm. um, 
Apple acquired a company called Primephonic, and Primephonic was a classical music streaming service. I remember when that happened. Actually, I remember that news. We didn't know exactly what was going to happen as a result of this. Was Apple just kind of buying the company to buy the rights to then roll that music into its own Apple Music library? What was going to take place? Well, Apple decided or has decided that the way that it wants to handle it is by creating an entirely separate app, Apple Music Classical. And this is a music streaming app that is specific to classical music. If you have an Apple Music subscription, it works for Apple Music Classical. Um, Apple has published the app in the App Store for pre-order, so you can pre-order it today. And what that means is when it comes out, uh, then it will just automatically download to your phone. It comes out on March 28th. But um, what, ha- what what's going on here is it's pretty clearly prime phonic uh, at work in terms of the library of content, the deals, all of that stuff. Um, in fact, Apple says it's the world's largest classical music catalog in the world. Uh, It's got more than 5 million tracks. Um, And it also has uh, new classical music releases and, of course, old classical music releases together. Um, It is also an exclusive library. So there are albums that are exclusive to Apple Music Classical. And what makes it a little bit different from the base Apple Music app is that you uh, the, the search is a little bit different. You can search by composer, mm-hmm. by work, by conductor, by catalog number. Um, and so those of you who are you know classical music aficionados, be it Baroque style music or others, then you can use those. You're probably familiar with those terms of looking through uh, by, via catalog number. Um, it also has what Apple says is the highest audio quality, um, of any classical music library, streaming library, uh, up to 192 kilohertz, uh, 24 bit high res lossless audio quality. So those of you with, um, the setup that can handle that, you can listen in all of the glory, (laughs) uh, that is there. And they also, are touting the um, spatial audio features. Um, so if you want to listen in, you know, with spatial audio, you're able to do that for the albums that support it. Uh, now, another bit of, of, I think, uniqueness that makes this app different from just looking, because I could go into Apple Music and find a lot of classical music there. Mm-hmm. But um, 9to5Mac points out there are two uh, kind of important features. One is that the metadata for these tracks, for this music, is all uh, as complete and accurate as it possibly can be. So a lot of times when someone's listening to classical music, they do want to read everything they possibly can. Who was the conductor? What was going on? All of that stuff uh, as much as possible. And then this, I think, is kind of interesting and fun. Thousands of editorial notes, including composer biographies, descriptions of key works, and more. Mm, so I nice like the discovery. idea, yeah, of being able to go and listen uh, to a song and then know the history of it and, and you know, who the composer was, maybe when it was played, mm. uh, where it was played, 
that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, between, you know, Ludwig von Beethoven and um, modern uh, musicians, uh, being able to hear uh, or rather find all of that and be able to sort of sort it out is really cool. And then, of course, they also have editorial uh, team members who are going through sorting the content, making choices every week, just like they have with the standard Apple Music library. So um, the app itself, there are screenshots because, as I mentioned, you can uh, find it on the App Store. Uh, so you can get, and I will include, I'll put this in the uh, show notes. Um, you can get an early kind of peek at how it looks. Um, across the bottom, you've got a uh, system that's a lot like the Apple Music app. There's Listen Now, there's Browse, there's Library, and there's Search. So those four tabs. And then uh, they show a, a search for Beethoven, and then there's uh, the Piano Concerto Number no. 5 and E-flat Major, and then they've got Editor's Choice stuff, so specific tracks, and then popular recordings of uh, Piano Concerto Number no. 5 and E-flat Major, and so you can see kind of which ones have really been of interest to other people. Um, numbered works, and then uh, last but not least, they show that uh, this, of course, is available in high-res lossless for many mm-hmm. uh, a song. So it's very. I think it's going to be very exciting for folks who are um, into classical music. And I like, too, that it's for folks who have long been into classical music, but also for folks who might be getting into it or are wanting to get into it. Um, there are editorial playlists that are specific to kind of mm-hmm. learning a little bit more about it. So, yeah, I, this is exciting. Um, I like that, you know, it's a rollover. If you've got an Apple music subscription, this is available at no additional cost. Um, and of course that it comes in this very high quality, uh, with Dolby Atmos. Um, yeah, and that, a, lot of, a lot of classical fans actually really care about that kind of stuff. Whereas like, yes, you know, uh, your casual music listener is going to care a lot less about Atmos, yeah. you know, on their pop song. I mean, right. some 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 do. want to just to try it. But yeah, yeah the, the, the idea that you almost stuff. feel like you're in uh, in the audience getting to listen to uh, the, the group play in front of you is kind of yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's coming uh, March 28th. And if you do have an iPhone, of course, we'll, we've got links in the show notes and everything. You can go and pre-order it, which, again, is just like pre-download, essentially. Uh, it'll be available to you at that point. Um, I think, for me, the most fascinating thing is that they have decided to separate it out as its own app. Um, and Yeah, that's kind of what's on my mind, too. I will be curious how much of what's available there will also be available in the Apple music app when I'm listening to classical music. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if it's just the notes and just the um, editorial choices or whatever that, that are only in the Apple music classical, because in theory they would have the high quality uh, formats available in the standard Apple Music library. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to be looking into that. After this comes out, I will do a comparison um, to see what's different between the two and why you need to have that extra app on your phone, essentially. Yeah, it's interesting because it, it actually couples pretty nicely with what we talked about in my story of the week, right? Yeah. Spotify has other aspects of its business, chose to kind of sandwich it all into a single app mm-hmm. and uh, and promote through that app. 
And uh, that's, you know, undoubtedly the core users of Spotify are, you know, music listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, The other users, probably a much smaller number. Spotify wants it to be bigger. So they kind of put it in the app. And when I look at this, I mean, I have to imagine... I'm I'm probably not out of bounds for saying this, but the number of people who care so much about classical music, I mean, it's a a passionate group, but it probably is a much smaller number than the overall number of Apple Music subscribers. Yeah. And so Apple is left in this, you know, uh, position of do we take this extra feature, this extra avenue within the app, you know, and, and put it in the app that everybody already has? Or do we spin it out and have it be its own thing because that isn't going to appeal to 90% of the people who actually use the app? Right. You know what I mean? And so there's an interesting kind of uh, comparison to be made between Spotify's approach and Apple Music's approach or Apple's approach. And and funny that they've uh, sort of rolled these things out at similar times. Yeah. (laughs) Spotify does that and then Apple's like... We heard you liked classical music, so instead of putting the classical music into the app, we mm-hmm. gave you a separate app for those of you who like classical music. Yeah. The rest of you continue to use the app as you have up to this point. I, although I will say I did as an Apple Music subscriber last night, no, this morning, get a notification. That's how I found oh, okay. out about this. So okay. they still are giving a push notification to say, hey, this is coming soon. Um, but you're so not, not logging in Apple Music right. the way you have however many years of, of using it. And the entire front screen it's just, is yeah. like, here's all of the classical stuff, you know, <laughs> and, and then you got to like navigate around that. And yeah, it's whatever. my library first and foremost. Yeah. I'd have to go to the browse tab to get to all of that stuff, which yeah. is how I want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Interesting. Well, that's really cool. I do remember when when uh, this news the first started yeah. a couple of years ago, and it was like, okay, well, what, what is they this leading do? to? What could it be? And what is this leading to? Apparently, it takes a couple of years, and then we get there. Yeah, so. and I wouldn't be surprised if there were different, you know, methods. They had some tests of doing it within the app, and you know, one team trying to yeah. do it as an external app, all that kind of stuff. And who knows how much of it is legal stuff, where the, the library of content that they did license and however that sure. all works like that could be that it can't be part of apple music itself i mean there's right and the, of course the, that's all the speculation terms of service that someone agrees to right. in apple music and how that applies to that whole catalog of music compared to the you know however many decades of recordings that right. that exist in the realm of of classical music and yeah, it's a whole different kind of thing and that's kind of what um Knox Harrington was saying in the chat is because, you know, of course, with with other music, you've got covers occasionally, but it's not the same thing. A lot of this is going to be different um, groups performing this music that is meant to be performed by different groups. Yeah, right. These composers <laughs> totally. were writing this to be performed. It's not a cover song. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, we're not we don't think of Beethoven. classical music as like cover songs. <laughs> this is a cover of uh, that Bach, you know, song. No, it's it's not the same thing. It's a totally different landscape. Yeah. But uh, very cool. Very, very cool. And there's a lot of people, um, I didn't mean to downplay the number of people who are passionate or who would, who would care about this I didn't at think all. you did. Yeah, but... I, think, I think there's a lot of people who are absolutely thrilled that this exists mm-hmm. and that Apple, and as also that Apple is behind it, right? Right, right. Because Apple can do a lot of things like this mm-hmm. the right way. The right way, yeah. Yeah, I think I th- I'm hopeful that you know they're handling it yeah. uh, with the care and respect that it deserves. Right, and I exactly. Honestly, think that 
developing a whole new app does speak to that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Indeed. All right. Well, we've reached the end of this episode of Tech News Weekly. We do the show every Thursday and, uh, you know, it publishes to our show page on the web, twit.tv slash TNW. So if you go there, you'll find all the ways to subscribe to the show in audio and video formats. Um, and yeah, other than that, you know, here we're in the studio and again, and it feels good in the studio. <laughs> um, if you would like to get all of our shows, including this very show, Tech News Weekly ad free, we've got a way for you to do that you can join the club at twit.tv slash club twit when you head to that website there you will be able to subscribe to become a member of the club starting at seven dollars a month or 84 dollars a year when you join again every single twitch show with no ads you get your own little personal feeds of every show that you add to your podcast application of choice you get access to the twit plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else behind the scenes before the show after the show uh, some special events that take place and you get access to the Twit Discord, which is a Discord server uh, where you can chat with your fellow Club Twit members and also those of us here at Twit. It is an app, so you can get it on your phone, you can get it on your computer, and there you uh, log in and you're able to chat with uh, everybody, share animated images and links and all sorts of stuff. And again, that starts at $7 a month or $84 a year. But if you'd like, you can choose to pay more. Why? Well, we heard from some folks who said, look, you keep adding things to the club. There's more value. I'd like to pay you more money uh, for that value. And we said, okay, that's great. We can do that. (laughs) So now you have that ability to do so because it doesn't stop there. All of those awesome things I just mentioned are some of it, but you also get access to the Untitled Linux Show, which is, as you might imagine, a show all about Linux. You get access to Paul Therott's Hands-On Windows program, which is a short format show that covers all things Windows, tips and tricks. Uh, I know that uh, Paul has done some great episodes on uh, sort of installing Windows and everything that's involved with that process. Loads of great stuff there. And then you get access to my show, which is Hands on Mac, a show where I talk about all of Apple's devices. Again, short format, tips and tricks. And uh, we've had some great episodes. So please do join the club, twit.tv slash club twit. And thank you for your support. We do appreciate it. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, thank yes. you very much, Patrick Delahanty. The newly launched Home Theater Geeks with Scott Wilkinson. Yeah. Remember when I said we're adding value all Big the time? time. I wasn't lying. We continue to add value. So please join the club. You don't want to miss that show. I mean, even just to hear Scott Wilkinson's laugh is enough for me to want to subscribe. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> I, goodness gracious, that jolly, jolly laugh. <laughs> it's nah, fantastic. It's and, great. Uh, on top of that, incredibly sharp, uh, incredibly, um, you know, well knowledgeed that's weird incredibly knowledgeable that's the term i'm looking for uh regarding all sorts of home theater stuff so i am very much looking forward to uh seeing scott wilkinson's home theater geeks as uh he continues to publish episodes there please join the club have fun and uh, thank you for your support uh, if you'd like to follow me online and check out the work that i'm doing you can follow me at micah sergeant Uh, That's my social media handle on many a social media network. You can also head to chihuahua.coffee. That's C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A.coffee, where I've got links to the places I'm most active online. Uh, Check me out later today if you're a club member on Hands on Mac on Sundays uh, for Ask the Tech Guys with Leo Laporte and on Tuesdays for iOS Today with Rosemary Orchard. 
Jason Howell, what about you? Well, uh, at Jason Howell on Twitter, twit.social slash at Jason Howell on Mastodon. And then, of course, doing other shows, uh, both in front of the camera and behind the the scenes uh, here at Twit. All about Android every Tuesday, twit.tv slash AAA. And then uh, working with Leo to produce uh, This Week in Google, Security Now, and This Week in Tech. So even if you don't see me on the set, I'm behind the scenes uh, helping out and, and making it happen. So. There you go. That's what I'm up to. Uh, big thanks to John and John and everybody uh, here at the studio who helps us do this show each and every week, this time with extra work because we chose to come into the studio instead of from home. And it does require a layer of uh, a layer of extra extra work and yeah. extra work. That's right. <laughs> there you go. And a uh, big thanks to you for watching and listening each and every week. We couldn't do it without you either. So thank you. And we'll see you next time on tech news weekly. Now, what do we do here at the end? We go boom. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I am Ant Pruitt, and I am the host of Hands-On Photography here on Twit TV. I know you got yourself a fancy smartphone, you got yourself a fancy camera, but your pictures are still lacking. Can't quite figure out what the heck shutter speed means? Watch my show. I got you covered. Want to know more about just the ISO and exposure triangle in general? Yeah, I got you covered. Or if you got all of that down, you want to get into lighting, you know, making things look better by changing the lights around you. I got you covered on that, too. So check us out each and every Thursday here on the network. Go to twit.tv slash hot and subscribe today.